Welcome to Digital Yom, a podcast about living a symbolic life in a technological age. Man cannot stand a meaningless life. I'm Jason Smith, Jungian analyst and your host for this show. And in this episode, I conclude my series on the symbolism of alchemy by looking at the all-important image of the goal of the alchemical opus, the Philosopher's Stone. It's the human soul. That's the buried treasure. The old natural philosophers not only felt pretty clearly, but actually said that the miraculous substance, whose essential nature they symbolized by a circle divided into four parts, was man himself. Gerhard Dorn cries out, transform yourselves into living philosophical stones. There can hardly be any doubt that not a few of those seekers had the dawning knowledge that the secret nature of the stone was man's own self. So here we are at the final installment of this series on alchemy. And our subject, appropriately enough, is that image of the goal of the whole opus, the Lapis Philosophorum, or the Philosopher's Stone. This is actually a very interesting image because, on the one hand, it feels somewhat anticlimactic, right? I mean, what could be more ordinary, more prosaic than a stone? On the other hand, this simple stone was said to have wonderful, even miraculous powers. And so what we have here is a symbol that holds together a wide range of meanings and experiences and expresses a paradoxical union of opposites all at once, the ordinary and the extraordinary the physical and the spiritual, unity and multiplicity. Psychologically speaking, then, in its most basic form, this is the goal. To achieve a state of wholeness, a state in which all facets of our human nature, our physical being, as well as our spiritual potentials, are in harmony with each other. Now, what the stone actually was in terms of being an object of physical and chemical experiment is impossible to determine. It has as many names and was expressed by as many images as was the prima materia, the raw material from which the stone was ultimately produced. 
And this lack of clarity and the diversity of expression is what leads Jung to the understanding that the stone was what he calls an outcropping of the unconscious. It was, he writes elsewhere, a sort of inner image of the cosmos, reaching not into immeasurable distances, but into an equally immeasurable depth dimension. The philosopher's stone, in other words, is to be understood as a psychological experience, an image of the inner life. Indeed, the stone was said to consist of body, spirit, and soul, and to be a living being, for which reason Jung concludes the lapis represents the idea of a transcendent totality which coincides with what analytical psychology calls the self. Now the self, remember, is not the same as the ego, that part of ourselves that we call I. It's more comprehensive than our conscious experience, an immeasurable depth dimension, to use Jung's apt phrase, that confronts us with an, at times, startling objectivity and reality. It's not simply what we know about ourselves and who we are, but more importantly, what we do not know. Furthermore, the self is not personal, but impersonal, an experience we could say not of what we seek, but of what seeks us. And this brings up another quality of the lapis. For all the hardness and density inherent in the image of a stone, it is something exceedingly delicate. As one 17th century author describes it, lastly, as touching the angelical stone, it is so subtle that it can neither be seen, felt, or weighed, but tasted only. Clearly, this statement is pointing to a level of experience that is nearly impossible to describe. It is a subtle reality going beyond the domain of the five senses. We can only get a taste of it, right? Catch the flavor of it, so to speak. And here we start to approach the sphere of religious experience. The encounter with that which is transcendent of our ordinary categories of existence and with the experience of meaning. This is the ineffable dimension of reality to which the symbols of the world's religious traditions point. And it is the dimension that Jung points to with his concept of the self. As when he states, as for the self, it is completely outside the personal sphere and appears, if at all, only as a religious mythologem. And its symbols range from the highest to the lowest. Like the philosopher's stone, this dimension of experience cannot be seen, felt, or weighed, but tasted only. That is to say, it requires a particular quality 
of perception. Not, as I said, of the senses, but rather of what I call symbolic sensitivity, which is a kind of capacity to feel with or resonate with what is invisible and yet palpable. It's clear that the alchemists, for the most part, understood the stone as a symbol of this subtler aspect of experience. It was certainly not meant to be taken literally. It was a stone which is not a stone. And this idea is echoed in a work called The Golden Tract, where the author declares, neither be anxious to ask whether I actually possess this precious treasure. Ask, rather, whether I have seen how the world was created. The lapis, then, is not a thing, but an experience, a state of being, a quality of consciousness or imagination. And this state of being is one of vitality, aliveness, and creativity. And so it's not surprising to discover that the stone was said to have the power to make all things grow, flourish, and bear fruit. The philosopher's stone, and by implication the quality of consciousness of which it is the symbol, can be said to be an expression of what alchemy called the Benedicta Veriditas, the blessed greenness. This is the life impulse, visible through all of nature, or, as Jung describes it, the secret imminence of the divine spirit of life in all things. For one who has made contact with these depths in their own being, life is discovered to be and is felt to be inherently meaningful, even in the midst of ongoing struggle and conflict. In a beautiful passage from his book, Mysterium Conjunctionis, Jung offers a portrait of just such a person. In communing with himself, Jung writes, he finds not deadly boredom and melancholy, but an inner partner, more than that, a relationship that seems like the happiness of a secret love, or like a hidden springtime when the green seed sprouts from the barren earth, holding out the promise of future harvests. This description of the fruitful and generative nature of the stone calls to mind the symbol of the Holy Grail, from the Arthurian tradition. In particular, it suggests that version of the Grail as described in the epic poem Parzival, written in the early 13th century by the German poet Wolfram von Eschenbach. Wolfram's Grail is unique among the many stories dealing with this subject, as it's not depicted in the usual form of a vessel or a cup, but rather as a stone. 
that Wolfram was not unaware of alchemical ideas is persuasively shown by Emma Jung in her book, The Grail Legend. So here's a passage from Parzival in which this mysterious stone called the Grail and its miraculous properties are vividly described. Now listen, and you shall hear more. A hundred squires so ordered reverently took bread in white napkins from before the grail, stepped back in a group, and separating, passed the bread to all the tables. I was told, and I tell you too, that whatsoever one reached out his hand for, he found it ready in front of the grail. Food, warm or cold, dishes new or old, meat, tame or game. There never was anything like that, many will say. But they will be wrong in their angry protest. For the grail was the fruit of blessedness, such abundance of the sweetness of the world that its delights were very like what we are told of the kingdom of heaven. In small vessels of gold there were dressings for every dish, gravy, pepper sauce, and fruit broth. The temperate eater and the glutton both had their fill. All were served with great courtesy, and whatever drink one held out his goblet for, whatever drink he might name, mulberry juice, wine, or red sinople, he found the drink in his glass, all by the power of the grail, whose guests the noble company were. It is a serious mistake, teaches Joseph Campbell, to interpret mythological symbols in a concrete manner. He cautions us against understanding such symbols as referring to actual or imagined historical events, and insists, rather, on recognizing them as expressions of the mysteries of the human spirit. When we encounter an image such as the grail, from which flows an inexhaustible feast, the abundance of the sweetness of the world, we have to guard against any tendency towards a literalizing imagination. Our thoughts shouldn't be pulled down into the gross physicality of an all-you-can-eat buffet. It's not bodily food to which such an image refers, but spiritual food. And, in fact, the philosopher's stone was said to be called the food of angels. And what this speaks to is the experience that one has everything one needs. Again, not in the sense of being in possession of a lot of stuff, but in possessing an inner stillness and a kind of communion with life. To have access to the food of angels, 
I would say, is to have a felt connection with the meaningfulness of one's life. The tendency to concretize the symbolic material was an ever-present one in the alchemical tradition. The philosopher's stone we read in one text hath the power of transmuting any imperfect earthy matter into its utmost degree of perfection. That is, to convert the basest of metals into perfect gold and silver, flints into all manner of precious stones as rubies, sapphires, emeralds, and diamonds, etc., and many more experiments of the like nature. Many who were drawn to the practice of alchemy believed they were indeed looking for a means of creating for themselves such earthly treasures. But the more sophisticated alchemists understood this to be the lowest possible aim of the work. These practitioners of the sacred art were guided by such sayings as Orum Nostrum Non est orum vulgi. Our gold is not ordinary gold. So, what is it, then? What is this gold that is not gold, made by a stone that was not a stone that the alchemists sought so diligently? If it was not a substance to be found in the external world, then it must have been, as I've already noted, a substance, so to speak, found within. As Jung states in our opening quote, there can hardly be any doubt that not a few of those seekers had the dawning knowledge that the secret nature of the stone was man's own self. Now, I said earlier that the lapis, the stone, was not a thing, but a quality of consciousness. And I stand by that statement, but I think it's important to qualify it just a little bit. Though it's true that we should not take symbols concretely as referring to literal material facts, it's also true that we shouldn't take them so spiritually that it causes us to ignore our physical and earthly existence. We should not make a hard and fast distinction between the inner and the outer, the psychological and the physical, matter and spirit. And this is one of the great virtues of a symbol, like the philosopher's stone, it's one that holds opposing tendencies together in a unity. In a text called the Turba Philosophorum, it says, This stone is cheap and costly, dark and hidden and known to everyone, having one name and many names. It's cheap because it can be found everywhere. It's the raw material of our everyday lives. It's costly because it takes a great deal of effort to learn to discover the gold 
in the mundane realities of our lives. And this, of course, is the whole work of the opus, the great journey of individuation in which one winds up exactly where they started, right here in this world, but now seen in a new, more comprehensive light. And this is the takeaway for all of this. In the Zen tradition, a representation of this state of being can be found in the last of what are known as the Ten Ox Herding Pictures. This is a series of pictures that depicts a process of development that could be compared, I think, to the alchemical opus. They describe a movement from an initial state of confusion through a process of seeking, withdrawing from the world, progressing in contemplation and reflection, and culminating, finally, with a picture titled Entering the Marketplace. The image of this final picture of the series is of an enlightened figure who is comfortable moving in and out of the bustling world of the marketplace. He's humble in appearance, and it is said that he goes his own way while remaining unrecognized by the world. Despite his unassuming nature, however, his presence has the power to make withered trees burst into bloom. And this is an image, according to Addison Hodges Hart, in his book, The Ox Herder and the Good Shepherd, of inner stability and the ordinariness of holiness. Both of these phrases, by the way, being perfect synonyms for the philosopher's stone. Hart draws out the parallels between this figure from the Zen tradition and that of Jesus in the Christian tradition. He writes, The model that Jesus set before his disciples was that of one so inwardly free and self-assured that he can mingle in the marketplace, eat and drink and be sociable, and yet have the ability to gather around him a community of those who seek the kingdom of God. And this description echoes what we've already heard about the philosopher's stone, as it was represented in the image of the grail from the story of Parzival. The grail was the fruit of blessedness, such abundance of the sweetness of the world that its delights were very like what we are told of the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven, of course, is not some other place at some other time. It's right here, right now in the hard, stony reality of our lives. On the one hand, it's necessary to work, to bring about the realization of this kingdom on earth as it is in heaven, right? On the other hand, the task is to learn to recognize that it's already here. 
This is the quality of consciousness represented by the symbol of the philosopher's stone. And it's expressed in a well-known saying found in the extra-canonical text of the Gospel of Thomas. When Jesus is asked when the kingdom is to come, he responds by saying that it won't come by waiting for it. It's not going to just suddenly appear. They are not going to say, says Jesus, here it is or there it is. Rather, the kingdom of the Father is spread out over the earth and people do not see it. I'll be back in just a minute with this week's Parting Words. You'll find a list of all the sources used in this week's episode in the show notes. You'll also find links to connect with me on social media, as well as for my book, Religious But Not Religious, Living a Symbolic Life, available from Chiron Publications. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider supporting the production of this show. You can do so for as little as the cost of a cup of coffee at Buy Me a Coffee. You'll even find some extras for this show posted there from time to time. Just hit the Support the Show link in the show notes. Thank you very much. Now here are this week's parting words. I want to return one more time to the image of the Philosopher's Stone, and in particular, to the phrase itself. And I want to share with you what I think is a good, concise, and helpful definition of this phrase put forward by Edward Edinger in his book, Ego and Archetype. And it goes like this. Reference to the ancient philosophers brings up the whole question of the meaning of the term philosopher's stone. Philosopher means lover of Sophia or wisdom. A stone is matter in one of its hardest forms and connotes solidity, permanency, and stubborn factuality. The philosopher's stone thus symbolizes something like concretized or actualized wisdom. Until next time.